Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. You know how like when you're growing up, they always teach you, you know, the best rule of thumb is to always tell the truth. Is it? I mean, is it? This is Death, Sex, and Money. I would never kill somebody unless they pissed me off. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. We split the money 50-50. And need to talk about more. I'm only joking. I love you, mommy. I'm Anna Sale. In the spring of 2018, comedian Hassan Minhaj became a dad. It's been... Uh, it's been the most beautiful and horrific thing that's ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being real. Like, it's it's a doozy. It is a doozy. When his daughter was born, Hassan was working as a correspondent for The Daily Show. He'd recently won a Peabody Award for his stand-up special, Homecoming King. And he was in the thick of developing his weekly political TV show for Netflix called Patriot Act. Hassan's wife, Bina, a Ph.D. in public health, also has a demanding career. So it's felt like a lot to manage all at once. That's been the, the, the biggest sort of like push and pull of it. We got to divide and conquer. All right. Like you sleep this time. I'll pick up this. All right. Swap it out. I'll sleep. Now you cover this. Just like the strategizing. Yeah. The logistics. Just the logistics. Yeah. And I've never been really great at them. And so I've just had to level up. You know, and um, I don't know. I'm amazed. I'm just like amazed by like even I think about what my parents had to do and the resources they had and how they were, they were able to figure it out. So mm-hmm. and I've seen like this whole new side of my parents, which is wild. It's so strange seeing them. Like I've, I see my dad sprint. I've never seen my dad sprint. He like got up and like ran to get my, my daughter just ran out of the apartment and ran down the hallway. And he just got up and sp- I've never seen my dad sprint like that. I'm like, Dad, I did not know you had this fast twitch muscle in your calves. It's unbelievable. Hassan grew up primarily with his dad until he was eight in Davis, California. Both of his parents immigrated there before he was born. But his mom went back to India for several years for med school and then did her residency in New York. It was a lot of Simba and Mufasa time, so to speak. Wait, tell me what that means. Uh, you know, like I, I would say... He's sort of establishing these rules and structures, and I'm trying to subvert and break those rules um, and trying to establish my own autonomy. And I think we butted heads a lot just for me, you know, as a kid growing up um, 
and then pursuing comedy. There was a lot of of that, but um, I really, I really do um, have a lot of respect for him. He's a really ethical and decent person. And as I've gotten older, I, I I've really started to appreciate that more. Did you go to mosque in Davis? Yeah. Yeah, I went to the mosque. Yeah, my my dad would take me to Sunday school and um I would go to the mosque. Yeah. There's one mosque in the city, so it was the mosque that you had to go to. You know, when you go to bigger cities, sometimes the mosques are divided by subcommunities. So you'll have like uh you know, a South Asian mosque, then you'll have a more Arab mosque, and you'll have a, a a black mosque. Um this is one of the one of the things that I thought was actually kind of beautiful and cool. There was only one mosque in the town, so we all had to go there. And what were the power dynamics like in terms of like who got to be in charge? I mean, that's what I think that's a whole another podcast in and of itself. It's, <laughs> it's I mean, mosque politics are wild. I mean, because I mean, you're talking about global geopolitics, race, right. class, Sunni Shia dynamic, all sorts of stuff. You shouldn't be praying that way. This is the right way to pray. It's wild. I mean, I've seen fist fights in mosque parking lots. Really? We, yeah, totally, totally. Huh. Yeah, it's like a microcosm of what's happening in the world right now. Like. One time my dad broke up like this heated fight between two uncles. Um, hmm. One of the uncles was clearly wrong. Like I think one of the uncles was just like <laughs> bigoted, racist. Like it was just <laughs> offensive. Like you're wrong, dude. And my dad said something really powerful. And he was like, hey, you guys both need to say sorry to each other, which first of all is like, again, an, an impossible thing. You're asking two uncles to apologize and admit fault. That's just not going to happen. Uh-huh. Say you're sorry to each other. And then number two, like he had them hug it out. And I remember we, when we got in the car, I was like, Dad, why did you do that? Like, why didn't you just defend the guy who needed to be defending? And we should have just kept it moving. And he said something really powerful. He said, sometimes it's better to be together than to be right. Huh. And I think, you know, I think about that a lot. And I think there's a time and place for both. Hassan felt that tension between unity and difference a lot when he was growing up. Davis, California is more diverse now, but it was about 70% white when Hassan was in high school. He said he felt like he was surrounded by a bunch of, quote, Ryan Lochtes. I've always felt like I was wearing an away jersey, even though I'm supposed to be playing a home game. I've had an ability to be able to uh, communicate to, uh, I think, all sorts of different people because of that. I've spent more time observing them than the other way around, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I can guarantee with the the people that I've met, I've spent more times in their types of households than they've spent in mine, you know? And at the time, that can feel a little weird, jarring, alienating. You're always kind of on guard. Uh Uh-huh. When did you realize that that you were handsome? (laughs) Um... I don't know. I, I, that's a very weird question. I don't know how to, I don't even know how to answer that. You know, growing up, I didn't consider myself to be particularly uh, good looking. Like, um, you know, I have really bad eyesight. I, I have negative 7.5 and negative 8.5 respectively in my right and left eye, uh, which is which is pretty thick. Like my, my lenses were really thick. So I wore glasses and stuff like that. Uh, it was pretty bad. And I would use L.A. looks <laughs> hair, which is like, Wait, you like get the gel. Or the the gel. Yeah, you could get uh-huh. it. at You could get it at Rite Aid or CVS. It was a dollar uh, and you'd get about three gallons of it, which <laughs> which is like insane. Yeah. And it would just turn your hair to concrete. And, um, yeah, I'd spike it up. 
You had the same tub of LA looks that you bought when you were 16. Sure, sure. On it. Yeah. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, I had really bad acne. I took Accutane. Um, if there are any Accutane heads Accutane. out there. I took Accutane. I did too. Yeah, did yours th- also have the pregnant woman with the like, the Truly terrifying. <laughs> Anna, I actually think that you <laughs> and I are both, yeah, 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 we're both up for a class action lawsuit. So you and I should call Habis, Amendola, and Associates. That's Habis, Amendola, and Associates. They pumped Accutane into me through high school. Oh my God. <laughs> To be clear, Accutane is, was acne treatment. Um, yes. And it would purge it from your skin. It would just, <laughs> it would, there would be volcanoes of whiteheads just throughout your face. It was, it was like an exorcism oh. of bacteria f- just spewing out of your face. You had to do like urine tests to make sure your liver was functioning while you were taking it. And I yep. still was like, whatever, get, the, get rid of this acne. I'm get taking this out it. of me. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. So you you went to UC Davis after yes. high school. Yes. And you lived at home? Yeah. My freshman year, I lived in the dorms, and I, then my parents made me move back home. So I lived at home the rest of uh, the rest of college. But I met, I met my wife in the dorms my freshman year, my now wife, Bina. I saw her in, in my freshman year of, of college. Yeah. Did you have a sense when you met her that this was a special person? I, I definitely knew. Like, she was super special. She was wearing these overalls. And then she was wearing like a green bandana, Aaliyah style. And oh. I was just like, oh my, who is that? Um, yeah, then we got together and, you know, we were college sweethearts. And She's still um, living on campus and you're living at home? Yes. So what was yes. what was dating like? How did that work? I mean, it was, it was like a reverse Rapunzel let down your hair. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Generally, the prince is going to the princess's <laughs> place and is like, hey, can you come out? This was like the reverse. She would like come to my place, call me and be like, hey, can you come out? And be like, all right, (laughs) wait a sec. (laughs) I'll be right there. Bina was a big supporter when Hassan started doing stand-up at local open mic nights during college. She'd lend him her car to get to gigs and hand out flyers on the street about his shows. She's like, you're going to do great and you're going to make it. And um, I I needed that. What was it that drew you to comedy when you were in college? I just loved the radical honesty in it. I loved that idea of like, wait, you can say that? I remember seeing Chris Rock's Never Scared, and I remember him talking about George W. Bush, politics, seeing Jon Stewart talk about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I remember being like, how can you possibly talk about this stuff? You can't talk about this stuff. I worked at Safeway at the time. I was, I was bagging groceries and stuff. Like, I can't talk about this at Safeway. I'll get fired. And that is what I loved about it. But as Hassan experimented with being radically honest on stage, he says he was not always honest in his personal life. After he graduated with a degree in political science, he decided to give comedy a try in Los Angeles. You know, Bina and I were still dating, and I remember... I was lying to her, my parents, about what I was doing, where I was going, who I was dating, who I was seeing. You know, I really lost their trust for a long period of time. There was a, there was a few years, like, I, I lost the trust of someone who's, who's now my wife. My, I think my relationship with my, even my dad was, was really bad. Why were you lying to all these people in your life? What were you trying to protect? Um, lying to my parents. They really wanted me to go to law school. Uh, so I, I was lying to them. Oh, hey, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to come down here. I'm going to apply to law schools in Los Angeles. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to pursue that. And um, I, I I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing I'm doing stand up, and I'm being able to pay the bills. Everything's going great, mom and dad. I wasn't telling them where I was living. You know, I it was bad. I was living with like four or five other people. Like you know, it, it was a thing that I didn't want my parents to see. So lying to them. With Bina, it was like. Hey, you're pursuing your masters in Northern California. I'm down here in LA. I'm meeting all these new people and I can you know what I, mean? I don't have to sneak out of my house to see them. I mm-hmm. I wasn't honest about that stuff, right? I was like, "No, I'm not seeing anybody else." No. Like were you did she think you were together? Yeah. Yeah, and that was like a So you were together and you were seeing yeah. other people that she didn't know about. I caught. I remember she asked me, "You know, are you seeing other people?" I think I know you're seeing other people. Yeah, and it was a really painful, and we broke up because of it. Like, it was really painful for her. Like, I think the reality of it was like, I should have been honest. Hey, I'm in my early 20s. I don't really know what I'm doing. These are my, I'm I'm being ratchet. (laughs) That's why I kind of make jokes about it, about being a a Daisy fuckboy. Because you were one. (laughs) Yeah, because I was one, totally. And that's why I own it. I just go like, yeah, I, I make fun of, Daisy fuckboys because I am the prototype of that. I remember my sister one time called me and was just like, I don't know what you're doing down there, but it's not good. Oh, she knew. And I Uh remember just like, you know, when you get that from even like your family or a loved one that's not your parents and they know, you know it's bad. Like you're just like, what? yeah, what am I doing? Like I'm lying to my parents about where I live. I'm lying to like someone who really loves me about who I'm dating, who I'm seeing. What am I doing? And you think about that time, I don't know. I really struggle with this. Was that period of time necessary? Like, is that just a part of growing up? Is that is is that period of time of being a fuckboy just part of life? Or is that thing I could have avoided? Is that a thing that if, like, I had stronger character and if I was a better person, I could have avoided? I don't have the answer to that. I really don't. Coming up, Hassan wins Bina back. And as his career takes off, he tries to balance being honest to her with being honest to his audience. Especially because I'm a public figure and uh, uh, my wife lives a a relatively very private life. Um, That's something that I think about a lot, like when we're talking about and and sort of discussing and and sometimes having arguments about stuff. Is it better to be right or is it better to be together? I've chosen uh, a lot of times the latter. We heard from a lot of you after our recent episode with the former debt collector, Angela, who talked about the methods she used to try to get people to pay up and why she's dodging debt collectors now. On Instagram, a listener named Kirsten commented, I was a debt collector and it was the most soul-sucking three months of my career. No idea how she did it for 15 years. And another Kirsten wrote, It was so refreshing to hear an interview with someone who believes people should be responsible for their debt. But most of you told us you felt frustrated by Angela. A third listener named Kirsten wrote, I really struggled toward the end when she began talking about having children and not being able to pay the medical bills. She seemed unable to see the irony in her situation. And it made you share about your own experiences with debt collectors. 
Meg wrote on Instagram, This episode made me think of a time a year or so after college when a debt collector said some awful things to me to get me to pay off a loan. I went downstairs crying and my mom called her back, reamed her out, got my money back, and explained to me how to approach calls like that in the future. That no, she couldn't ruin my life or credit forever or whatever she'd said. Thanks, as always, to all of you, especially the Kirstens. We always include listener feedback in our weekly newsletter. If you are not subscribed, you can fix that at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. On the next episode, my conversation with the writer Anne Lamont on stage in San Francisco. It was part of the Reimagine End of Life Festival. Anne just got married for the first time at 65 years old. And I wanted to know how much she was thinking about death when she made that decision. Well, I had decided that my husband-to-be was actually after my Medicare payments. <laughs> and, um, but I didn't really think about death except for, you know, him killing me or, um, or keeping me, like sedating me and keeping me hostage while he cashed my Medicare checks. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. 
I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Hassan Minhaj and his now wife, Bina, were broken up when he learned that she was moving down to L.A. to get her Ph.D. in public health. I remember I was just like, I got, I got to make this work. Like, she's such a quality person. And, and what was that period of, of coming back together like? What, 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 how did you apologize? Um, I, I mean, I was just like, I just think you're an amazing human being, and I think that my life would be so much better with you. And she was like, no. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, she shot me down. I had to like, it was a struggle. I had to, I had to work for it. It was the toughest audition of my career. It was a lot. I mean, it was like months. Like we were just talking and really trying to make it work. She's like, I'm getting my PhD. You're an open micer. You got a lot of things to figure out. She's like, you got to go to therapy. You got to like talk to somebody about everything that's going on in your life. So this is like part of you trying to win her back. She's like, go to therapy. Totally. Totally. She's like, if you want to take up my time and talk to me, like, these are my requirements. You got to do this. 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 And um, yeah, therapy was one of them. And and it, it was really about rebuilding trust, you know? And I think, because I'm also thinking about now, right? Like even to this day, there's still things that when me and her are arguing and discussing stuff, and we talk about trust. There's still things that we have argued about that have been that same idea, a violation of trust. I've taken an idea and I've taken it out too far. And then she'll find out about it. And she's like, hey, you doing that implicates us. And I don't have a say in that. And that's a violation of our trust. An idea too far. Like, what does that mean? I'll give you an example. Like the idea to do the episode about Saudi Arabia. In October of last year, Hassan released an episode of his Netflix show, Patriot Act, that took on the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Now, if you've been watching the news, then you know that Saudi Arabia has been engulfed in a massive diplomatic crisis over the gruesome killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And it blows my mind that it took the killing of a Washington Post journalist for everyone to go, oh, I guess he's really not a reformer. Meanwhile, every Muslim person you know was like, yeah, no shit. He's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. That was something that, like, I I had been cooking up for a while, you know. And I didn't tell Bina or my family about it because I was personally struggling with it. 
And I remember she was like, when we were about to shoot the episode, she was like, are you aware that there are implications to this? How did she find out about it? She just came to the office. She saw it on the whiteboard. She had known I'd been kicking the idea around, but she saw it on the whiteboard in the sense uh-huh. that like, oh, you're really going to press play on this. Like, this is going to go forward. But that was one of the, that was another sort of big inflection point where it's like, no, you're at this point in your career where the things that you say and do have an impact on us, you know, and you have to, you have to involve me in that. And what, what were the ramifications for your family after you did that Saudi Arabia episode? Well, you know, the first few days after, like the, the social media side of it is, is pretty, pretty scary, right? Which is something that, you know, you can't tell the difference between is this going to, is this a real death threat or is this just a Twitter death threat? You just don't know. Did you bring on extra personal security for yourself or for your family after that? Yeah. Do you still have that security? Yeah. It really shook me. Like, I'm pushing a stroller with my wife up the street in New York, right? And, you know, people pull over in a car and they're like, hey, I saw your episode. And you're like, I don't know if this is good or bad. You immediately sort of Mm -hmm. jump into this flight or flight thing. And it was something I just wasn't ready for. I remember the second big one was Indian elections. You know, both of us have family in India. And the things that I'm talking about are extremely controversial there, incredibly heated that date back to the partition of India um, that have been long, long, long third third rail issues in that region. And there have been a couple of these sort of instances where it's, again, talking through with Bina. Like, she kind of was like, you know, she saw a rehearsal and she was like, hey, there's this sentence, this sentence, and this sentence that's like really, 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 that could get, get you into a lot of trouble or that could hurt really hurt the feelings of certain people in our family. Do you want to say that? And that was a long conversation. Did you keep those lines in? A couple of them we kept in and a couple of them, one of them was really painful and we cut it. And again, it's so it's one of those things. I'm trying to be radically honest, but then there's also the reality of like I also have to I have I have a duty I, to my loved ones and to my family too. And figuring out that has been the new challenge for me. Mm-hmm. I've really had to lean on that thing that Bina told me about even when we were getting back together. Like, you got to be honest with me. You got to be straight with me. Uh, because she's the only one that's going to tell me for real, for real, two things. She's going to check me on it artistically. But then also just for us as a family, like, okay, you say this, these are the implications. And there's a difference between even what I'm talking about with Saudi Arabia, that affects our future and going to that region, me making Hajj, all those sort of things. And then mm-hmm. there's the stuff that I say about India, that's gonna, that could potentially shape travel plans and safety for family members over there. You have to think about all those things. And you said, Hajj, you've, you've done pilgrimage before? You've been to Saudi Arabia? No, I haven't. And, um, you haven't? Yeah, I don't know if that is a thing <laughs> that can be done at this point. You know, I don't know. Is there a sadness about that? Yeah. Yeah. Because, and that's, and that, and that to me is like a, a pillar of our faith to make your pilgrimage. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. Now, 
can I go? Maybe. Should I go? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the safeties and things that we assume here in the United States, that is a privilege. Assumed safety that we have here is not a, is not a thing around the world. When did your parents become aware that you were doing the episode about Saudi Arabia? They became aware after the fact. After it was made? Yeah, after it was made. And out. And out, yeah. There's no way I could have gotten that bill passed through Congress with them. (laughs) (laughs) No way. No way. No way. But look, like, that's the thing. I got to be honest with somebody. Like, I got, there's got to be somebody that, like, that can navigate both things, personal and professional. Because I can talk to the other comics and they'll be like, yeah, man, say it. You got to say it. (laughs) But they're not the ones that are pushing that stroller, you know, up the street in New York and just trying to go to Trader Joe's and not trying to have, like, anybody roll up on you, right? Like, they don't have to live with those repercussions. Hassan has one other person he really relies on to talk through personal and professional dilemmas. His writing partner, Prashanth Venkataramanajam. They started working together in their early 20s when they were both living in Los Angeles. And Prashanth is now the co-creator and executive producer of Patriot Act. Like, what is something that he can tell you that somebody else in the writer's room can't? He would say something like, don't say that. And I'd be like, what do you... <laughs> I go, what do, you, what, do you, what do you mean? He goes, it's going to sound really bad. That's for Jean. And I would see it in his eyes. It's like a person that you've known for 12 years. It's just like, he's just, it's like when you, when you go to Zara or something and you go, I'm going to try this hat. And they go, don't, you're not a fedora person. Don't do a fedora. You have that one friend that just says it with such raw honesty. You know they're not hating. You know they're not doing it to just like put you down. They're doing it because they really, really love you. Um, and they just care. They just don't want you to look bad. That. He has an ability to do that. As you became more well-known, more recognizable, did you notice any shifts in the dynamic of your working relationship? Did you have to sort of reestablish, uh, I don't know, the power dynamic or have conversations about how that was changing your collaboration or anything like that? He's someone who's so close to me that I would never want to lose him as a friend. So as things started to change... Um, there's two things. I was just, just really straight up with him. Like number one, like about everything about like, this is how much I'm making. This is what I'm doing. This is what, what they're offering me. This is what they're, they've asked me to do. Like number one. And then number two, like it would be, it was, it would be something like, I would say, I want you to do this with me. This is how much money they're offering. Let's split it. Let's do this together. Like I, I want, I want to do this with you. And then there's this just other intangible that a lot of people don't understand. You know, in show business and what's happening right now, there's not a lot of people that look like us and are doing what we're doing. And we both, I remember around 2012, 2013, we both kind of realized nobody's looking out for us. Nobody's going to come save us. We got to do this on our own. There is no big brother. There's no big, there's no mentor Do you know what I mean? There's no Daisy, Judd Apatow, or Spike Lee that's going to sort of extend an olive branch and go, I'm going to executive produce your first thing. Uh Like, we really are just blazing this trail with machetes ourselves. We're using sort of the the foundation that a lot of um, immigrant and minority communities have sort of laid out for us from before. But we just have to kind of do it and go for it ourselves. And we just kind of made this partnership 
that, hey, we're going to figure this out no matter what. You and I will figure it out brown, brown paper bag style. Like, hey, this money came in. I'll Venmo you half. Let's do this. Uh, you know, and yeah. that, that's the same way our parents, when our fathers first got to this country in the early 80s, had to brown paper bag and figure it out. We, we sort of figured that out with show business, you know. Do you go to mosque in New York City? Yeah. Yeah. I go to the mosque. What's your mosque like in New York? So I go to the one uh, on 72nd Street. Uh, it's on that west side, so it's a lot of people that are commuting or uh, ca- dri- driving cabs. They're transient, people that are sort of trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. That's that's the mosque that I go to. So it's like people coming in for prayers, but not a lot of chit-chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here to pray. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> That vibe, that vibe. But it's cool. I, again, it reminds me a little bit of like the Davis Mosque too, where it really is. It's not for one specific group. It's for like all different types of, you know, it's for Muslims from all different parts of the world, which is really cool. How often do you go to the mosque? I try to go every Friday. I try to go every Friday. I remember after the New Zealand stuff happened, there was some time that I, I didn't go to the mosque for a while. Um, because it didn't feel safe? Yeah, it just freaked me out, you know? It just felt weird. Uh, I was like, should I go? Should I be scared? It was weird. I was almost doing the, like, (laughs) it was kind of dark, but it was like I was doing the, I was doing the long division in my head. You know what I mean? It's like, well, if I if I don't go, is that mean, is that means I'm like, I'm like, I'm too scared to pray, but if I do go, and something happens, like, maybe that means I'll go to heaven, right? Like, because that's how, like, you know what I mean? Like, God will be like, mm-hmm. he was, he really was committed. Like, it was really dark. How long did you stay away from the mosque? It was about a month or so. Yeah. And what what was really beautiful is I remember going back and um, I really, this was maybe actually really made me really proud to be in New York. I come back and um, there's all these people standing outside of the mosque on 72nd Street holding up signs. Like, um, we're, 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 we're proud to protect you. We're here to like protect you. It was- Non-Muslims. Yeah, it was the Jewish community, the Christian community, just different people from the city just stood outside during prayer. Like they were holding up signs like salam, like it was like really cool. And um, to this day, there's still one woman. She still comes and stands outside of the mosque. Still, like to this day. Like she'll come every Friday and she'll just stand just to watch. Have you spoken to her? Yeah, I see her every week. I see her every week. I say, what's up to her? <laughs> and describe, what does she look like? Uh, she's a, she's an older uh, Upper West Side uh, Jewish lady. You've, you've, you've recognized her. You've, you've seen her. She's got her tote bag. She donates, you know, she donates to FPR. She's a WNYC yeah, listener, course. probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she has a scarf. She's got really cool brooches. Yeah. <laughs> she'll say salam. She'll do the full assalamu alaikum. You, she'll, she won't even just do the salam. You're going to hit all the syllables. I mean, it's it's incredible. That's Hassan Minhaj. You can find his show Patriot Act on Netflix.
Debt, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of The Reveal Podcast in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affie Yellow Duke, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Liza Veal for her help on this episode. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Hassan and Prashant have the kind of relationship where even when Hassan's by himself, he can hear the edits Prashant would give him, including after this interview. Like, I imagine if Prashant was here, he'd be like, don't say fuckboy on WNYC. Just don't do it. <laughs> it's not a good thing. It's like not the right audience for it. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.